so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. is simple. What Jesus is trying to say is we're all broken. When it comes to the theology of human sexuality, it's about all of us recognizing that, putting it under the Lordship of Christ, if we're Christians, and saying, Lord, help me. And then allow him to teach you and to bring that scripture alive in your heart. And it's, guess what? It's as difficult for heterosexuals as it is for homosexuals. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and will often bring about division when the truth is taught. One of these areas we see this most prominently in our culture is when it comes to marriage. Jim Daly, in his talk, Reconcilable Differences, Building Bridges with Those Who Disagree About Marriage, helps us see how we can lovingly interact with people who take stances that are opposite than ours. We hope you're instructed by this message. Hey, it is great. I want to thank Russell Moore for the invitation to be able to say hello to you guys. And we're just going to take a few minutes. But one of the things with focus on the family is taking over from Dr. Dobson, you know. And uh, I want to confess right now, I'm not a perfect husband and I'm not a perfect father. And I've got evidence of this. And I want to kick it off with a little lightheartedness because we're going to go through some rapid scriptures and talk about how to impact the culture, how to engage the culture. And so it's going to be kind of a heavy download, but fast, I hope. So before we get there, though, I want to talk about uh, my family. There's my, my boys. Now, this photo is a few years ago, uh, probably about five, six years ago. And you see Dennis the Menace down there? That's Troy, my youngest, and Trent, my oldest. Trent's the scientist. So I bought this Hobby Lobby scientist experiment, or science experiment. It was these test tubes where you connect a battery, and it creates hydrogen gas, which is rocket fuel, right? And so you leave it overnight, then you light it, and it goes kaboom! And your boys go, you are the coolest dad ever! And uh, But the next night, we went out to dinner, and uh, the babysitter, I don't know what happened to this 15-year-old, but she was out of the picture. But I want to play for you the actual phone call that Troy uh, made that night. We're at a Jewish-Christian dialogue dinner, and this is evidence. The reason I'm doing this is evidence of not being the perfect parent. So let's play the clip. Hi, Mommy. Jason actually was dumb enough to... um get the battery I put my tongue on in the mini junk cables and actually plug it in the DVD player and it caught smoke. But don't worry, it did not uh, a fire. This is Troy, and, my, and by the way, Trent, Trent did it, okay? Okay. Um, have I been specific oh, enough? more. Okay, bye. Hang on. Oh, besides, don't. So easy, aren't it? So to all all my, you know, all the non-Christian friends I have, I always tell them, uh, you know, Cain and Abel is alive and well in the daily household. 
So, uh, <laughs> but it's so true. Hey, tonight, uh, Dr. Moore asked me if I'd speak about reconcilable differences and how to build bridges into the, you know, variety of communities that we work with that are outside the, the Christian faith. And uh, I'll do that. But what I want to do is start with the end story. And then I'm going to tell you how you get there scripturally. And so uh, we're doing, building on what uh, David Platt talked about. I did a, a broadcast with a woman, Linda Smith, who's an ex-congresswoman who started a ministry to help save girls taken in sex trafficking. So we're talking in this program, and there's 18-year-old Brianna right across from me at the table, and she was telling a story about how she was taken into sex slavery. And I was appalled, and I couldn't believe it. It was outside of Portland that this happened, and it was devastating as I listened to this 18-year-old girl's testimony. And Linda, at the end of the program, we talked about a scorecard that she gives every state in the United States. And the whole I-25 corridor, Interstate 25, that runs from uh, New Mexico up through Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana, every state got a D or an F, and mostly because of the trucking industry, she told me. And I was ticked. I thought... Colorado got a D, and I thought, we're going to change that. The next day, I uh, had somebody call and set up a meeting with the Gill Foundation, and the Gill Foundation in Denver is Tim Gill, a uh, you know, gay activist, very, very successful in uh, you know, a lot of the gains that they have made in the culture. And uh, I just called Ted Trimpa, who is a, an attorney and a lobbyist, and I said, Ted, let, let's talk. And I went up, and I met with him. I'd never met him before. And we just started to talk about the possibilities. What if Focus on the Family and the Gill Foundation work together to help pass legislation to protect these innocent children from sex traffickers, strengthen the laws, et cetera, get the grade from a D to an A? And uh, we talked for about an hour and a half, and it was very personal, very powerful, and I don't want to go into all that detail, but uh, he called me the next day and said, we're in. We'll work with you to do it. And it took a few months, but uh, Governor Hickenlooper, along with the democratically held uh, state house and the Republicans, all passed it unanimously. And there were a lot of people that played in that space. And, you know, the Gill Foundation focus wouldn't take uh, credit for it. But we were able to help push it through because we were such unlikely characters. Now, I say that story. It was an awesome story. And the point I want to make is the fact that, man, I am tired as, as a Christian of being afraid to engage the culture. I'm just sick of it. I, why? We have the best news in the world. We've got the good news. And uh, people, oh, people chided me and told me I shouldn't have met with them. And uh, I had donors pull back from focus on the family because I had met with them. And I thought, my goodness, what would Jesus truly do? I think he'd be mixing it up with the culture, don't you? And going out and meeting with people and talking with them and trying to convince them, certainly sharing the good news with them. But you know what? My words are useless. I mean, you can see the father I am. Trenton was stupid enough. So let's just go to Scripture rather than worry about what I have to say. Let's look there at 2 Timothy. I want to plow through these very fast, but the end game, the end story, how do you get there? It's a change in your own heart. If you want to fight the culture, you're not going to win the culture. You have to persuade the culture. I, I, I'll throw this in. I was doing a, writing a book called The Good Dad. And what I learned in there in writing that book, and certainly in my own parenting, and yes, my own uh, being a husband, guess what? When you're wagging your finger in your spouse's face, what does that person's heart do? It, it closes down. When you're in your teenager's face, I'll testify to this about his F, 
grade. You're saying, come on, you can do better than this. Come on, what do we got to do? I mean, come on, you're smarter than this. Boom, heart closes down. You got to come alongside and put an arm around them, show some compassion, sincerity, spend time with them. And guess what? When it comes to the culture, it's exactly the same, same thing. Why? God created our emotions, didn't he? And I think that's why Jesus came along and said, love your neighbor, because that will unlock their heart, right? Who has been beaten into the kingdom of God? Anybody? I haven't seen a hand yet in all the speeches I've given. Nobody's been beaten into the kingdom of God. People have been loved into the kingdom of God. People have been scared to consider, if I were to die tonight, what would happen to me? That's, a, that's fair. But I don't know anybody that's been bullied into accepting Christ, not in a real way. So let's look at the scripture. And the Lord's servant, this is out of 2 Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to most people. <laughs> oh, man, I hate these scriptures. Kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with harshness. Oh, no, gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Wow, there's a lot in that scripture, isn't there? And again, I think what, what is being laid out there for us by the Apostle Paul is the, the human emotion heart formula. You're not going to beat somebody and win them. You've got to show gentleness and kindness. It doesn't mean backing up on the truth. Whenever I speak like this, my opponents within our community of believers quickly say, ah, it's just social justice. You're just being too soft, too effeminate. I'm serious. Those are the words. I'm not trying to be disparaging to anyone. But that's what will be said. I'm too tender, too soft, too loving. Romans 2.4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Don't have much argument there. Look at this uh, quote by Pascal. I love this. There are two kinds of men, the righteous who believe themselves sinners, the rest sinners who believe themselves righteous. Why do we as human beings have this propensity especially if we have certain sins buttoned down in our own lives to judge others who don't. I've got men in my my community right now, there is more rumor mongering and gossiping that goes on about stuff that is just totally false. And we'd look the other way in the Christian community. Oh, that's okay. We just call that TMZ Christian version. It's wrong. Just flat out wrong. So how do you get to the point where You can engage culture with a joyful spirit. That's the key. First Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. I Really? I think we act like give thanks in many circumstances except election night. I'm not giving thanks for that. That can't be the Lord. The results come out that way. No, he's saying give thanks in all things. I love that scripture where it talks, you know, Jesus is saying, hey, the world will hate you for my sake, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. We forget that, don't we? The be of good cheer part. How would you like to be living in the first or second century? Don't tell anybody I'm a Christian. I think we're back there, don't you? We're certainly moving that direction. Let's look at a C.S. Lewis quote. I love this one. When a man is getting better, this one you got to stop and think about it. When a man is getting better... He understands more and more clearly the evil that is left in him. 
When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. Ouch! It's that modern-day Pharisaism, isn't it? We think we got that one all buttoned down and taken care of. How, much, how many sermons are taught about, are we inching back toward the Pharisaical heart? I haven't heard one. But in reality, I think it's alive and well out there. We often, in the human heart, in the condition that we're in as sinners, we often set ourselves up as much better than the other guy, which is exactly what Jesus was going after, wasn't it? You're in a dangerous spot when that's happening. Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander some people. No, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. These are tough scriptures, aren't they? I'm not taking one and building a whole theology around it. There's an abundant amount of New Testament scriptures. Jesus came onto the scene and said, no, 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 this is how I want to do it. This is the way forward. In Luke 6, these are perhaps the most difficult. I am a horrible, oh, I used to be, driver. I mean, horrible in the sense that if somebody cut me off, that would not make me very happy. And I remember being in a shopping center. Sunday afternoon, I had my blazer on. I had gone shopping for Jean. We had driven separately because she had to do something. I had to do something. So she asked me to stop by the store to get some things for lunch. And I'm at the store, and I'm backing out. (laughs) It was a Ford Fairmont station wagon. You know, that, that really isn't a really pretty car. And I'm backing out, but it's a station wagon. There's a van next to me, and I got the back end of the wagon out, and this guy, this young guy, is going through the parking lot about 30 or 40. Boom, he goes by, and he gives me a hand gesture as if it was my fault that I didn't see him and I was pulling out very slowly and cautiously. So I decide I'm going to, you know, give him some scripture. (laughs) So I chase him out of the parking lot. He turns left, I turn left, he turns right, I turn right, he pulls over. He gets out of his car, and I parked about 20 yards behind him because I want to see how big he was first. (laughs) That's called being wise as a serpent. And uh, But he gets out of the car and comes running at me, and I get out of the Ford Fairmont station wagon, and he stops about halfway, and he looks at me, and he goes, ah, just go back to church. And I'm standing there. I said, well, just drive better. And I got back in the car, and I just remember the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart saying, well, how'd that go for you? (laughs) Thanks for representing me so well today. I mean, and that day really it changed my attitude about driving and and being self-righteous about it, you know, doing generally the speed limit, always putting my blinker on, getting over in the right-hand lane rather than clogging the left-hand lane if I'm going slow. Colorado drivers are horrible at that. Anyway, but it changed my heart. And now when somebody cuts me off, I pray for them. It's not the natural thing to do, trust me. I still want to, and then the Lord says, remember that time? But it's just the right thing to do. So Luke, you look at Luke 6. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Oh, man. Who does that all the time? Anybody? I want to see you after this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes... Your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, that's the golden rule. We always like to say the last part, but look at the first part. That's incredible. 
That's a high bar. That's a high standard. I'd say a very unnatural standard for the human heart to do. How many people have you loved? At Focus on the Family, I remember walking into the public policy department not long after I took over, and I, there was some scuttlebutt about, you know, Jim's uh, different, and, uh, you know, things maybe uh, a little softer, a little weaker. And I just remember walking in there going, who prayed for Tim Gill today? And everybody knew who Tim Gill was with the Gill Foundation. Not one hand went up. And I said, well, I would suggest that's our first problem as Christians because it's pretty clear in Luke that's the first thing we should do is pray for those who may not see things the way we see things. Then you keep going in Luke. It doesn't get any easier, Luke uh, 6.32. If you love those who love you, what I love God's sense of uh, sarcasm. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. It keeps going there. But the last, that last sentence, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I think of God's mercy, his grace. We are soaked in an ocean of his grace, and we don't want to give a cup to anybody. Do you agree with that? I mean, generally. It's an amazing thing when we're given so much grace, Jesus dying for each one of us, and we don't want to really share that grace with anybody. 1 Corinthians it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Okay, guys, I just say, are we pathetic at this or what? I'm sorry to kind of bring the good news here, but we are really quick to expect the world to act like the church and really slow to ask the church to act like the church. Is it true? Is that true? I think it's true. I mean, I have it in my own life. I think of things and do things that are not right, that aren't glorifying to God. And hopefully I catch them, the Lord points them out, I repent and move forward and hopefully grow from them. But it's a constant battle. I don't do it well every day. Some days I do better than other days. But the point is, we've got to get our own house in order. When you look at everything that's going on in the United States today, just like I shared the story, the end story with you, it starts in our own hearts in the church. It starts with our heart. How do we treat others? How do we, um, you know, engage people? Is it with an attitude? I saw a, a website of a pastor who uh, was talking about creating these places where we would put homosexuals with a mile-long fence on this side, a mile-long fence on this side. And I mean, the pastor in a church saying, we'll just fence those people in and we'll helicopter food and water into them, and after a generation, they'll all be gone. That's embarrassing. I'm sorry that some people that claim Christ talk like that to a world that needs the Lord first and foremost. And what we tend to do is say, okay, once you get your sins cleared up, then you can get in line and accept Christ. Where's that in Scripture? How about accept the Lord and let him begin to dust those dirty rooms in your heart and take care of those things that he'll take care of you and teach you? I think that's the better way. All right, Colossians, I'm going to keep running through these. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Just a good reminder. Acts. Now, this is a good one for Paul in front of King Agrippa. You ever think about this? Put yourself right there in the courtroom of King Agrippa. Now, you remember, King Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod. I'm sure Paul knew who he was talking to. The great-grandson of the one who tried to kill Jesus, right? 
And so how does he talk to him? I mean, it's incredible. I can't think of anyone, King Agrippa, before whom I'd rather be answering. Just replace President Obama with King Agrippa. Make it practical. Before whom I'd rather be answering all these Jewish accusations than you, knowing how well you are acquainted with Jewish ways and all of our family quarrels. But Agrippa answered, keep this up much longer and you'll make a Christian out of me. Paul, still in chains, said, that's what I'm praying for, with an hour later. And not only you, but everyone listening today to become like me, oh, except for these chains. That's really funny, you guys. That is, that's actually a bit of Paul humor, right? I wish it were so, except for these chains you got me locked in. Can we take care of this? I think it's great. But look at the deference he's giving to the world power there. He's not demanding that King Agrippa end all sexual immorality in the kingdom or taking potions for uh, their version of Pitocin at the time, the abortifacient. Yes, women did that to create early labor and abortion back then. Really. Matthew 26, Jesus said, and put your sword. I, here's, here's where I want to kind of elaborate in. What dawned on me, I was looking at the scripture there between Peter in the garden and Stephen. Peter in the garden, it's really interesting to me. It's before Pentecost. He's not filled with the Holy Spirit. He's doing, I think, what many of us do today. We want to defend the Son of God. It's a good thing. And when the guard comes to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter steps like uh, steps up like anybody in here, I think, would. And we pull out the sword. Not the Son of God. You're not taking him. Not over my dead body. Right? And then I got to ask the guys in here, not the, you know, Girls in combat, too, I guess. But was he really going for his ear? I don't think so. I think he was going for his neck. And the guard probably went like this and clips his ear. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, basically, that's not the way it's going to happen. In fact, uh, that next bit of scripture there, he talks about he and the father already calculating it would take 12 legions of angels. (laughs) Is that in that one there? Let me just see if that's, yeah, more than 12 legions of angels. And then continuing in 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, the people. This is now talking about Stephen. Now move to post-Pentecost, Stephen filled with the, the fruit of the Spirit. And it says, now when they heard these things, let me just catch that first part again. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. My point is this. Peter in the garden wants to do a good thing in his natural man mind. I'm going to defend the Son of God. Pulls out the sword. Wham! Jesus rebukes him, says, that's not the way we're going to do it. We've already calculated that. That's not the way we're going to do it. And then Stephen takes what I would say is a spirit-filled approach, which is he doesn't control his circumstances. I'm sure he didn't know what the Lord was going to do with Saul to turn him into Paul. But there Saul is standing watching. And as they're stoning him, he has the presence of mind to pray for his enemies. Luke 6. 
And it so moves Jesus that he stands at the right hand of the Father. And my question is really this. It's not about backing up on principle. It's not about not doing the right thing or expressing the rightness and the righteousness and the truth of God. It's are we make, making and mentoring more Stevens in the church today, more than Peter in the garden? We need Stevens that are willing to listen, to engage, not to win a fight or a debate. And I know that the political sphere, it's important. We've got to be there. We've got to vote. And we've got to do all those things. Only 30 million out of 80 million Christians voted in the last election. So we can do all those things, and it's important in a democracy to do those things. But I'm just saying, with the Spirit of God, do we not need to reach people for Christ first and foremost, upstream from politics? God bless those brothers and sisters that are working in that space. We need you there. But some of us need to go upstream and start winning hearts for Christ and living it, all of us living it in such a way that it demonstrates that we believe what we talk about. I sat down with a gay activist, Tim Sweeney, former president of the Gill Foundation. His number was on my desk for months, and it fell off the desk, back on the desk. Our cleaning lady would always put it right back by the phone. Finally, I I scheduled this appointment with Tim, and we sat down. I didn't know him. We sat down at a table at Starbucks, and and I just said, uh, you know, Tim, uh, and he kind of interrupted me and just said, hey, we see you as our our greatest enemy. I said, wow, that's how we're starting the meeting. Okay. And then he said, and, and he's a good guy. I liked him. And he said, you know what? You guys in the Christian community, you haven't done so well with marriage. Why not let us try? What would you say? President of Focus on the Family, President of the Guilford. What would you say? I said, you know what? You're right. But the fact that we haven't lived it well doesn't nullify what I see as God's, God's truth. It just means we're pathetic living it. And I remember him saying, touche. <laughs> but we had that whole discussion. I remember thinking, what in the world? Why, why call this meeting? And I just remember what struck my heart and my mind. I remember just saying to Tim, you know what, Tim? I'm just, I think I know why I'm here. And it's just to let you know God loves you. And Tim began to cry. And I began to cry. God's love for this person. Yeah, God loves everyone. Regardless of what we do in our brokenness. And believe me, this whole deal, when I say, and often I will, when I say, guess what? Homosexuality is not the super sin. I get people say, you can't say that. Think of that. You can't say that. So inversely, they want to say that. We are sexually broken in this life, in this world. All of us. You don't think so? Every guy in here, if you've looked at a woman and lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Sorry. That should take maybe 90% of you out. The point of that is simple. What Jesus is trying to say is we're all broken. When it comes to theology of human sexuality, it's about all of us recognizing that, putting it under the lordship of Christ, if we're Christians, and saying, Lord, help me. And then allow him to teach you and to bring that scripture alive in your heart. And it's, guess what? It's as difficult for heterosexuals as it is for homosexuals. I love what... uh, Oh, Richard Mao, former president of Fuller Theological Seminary, said, my gay friends aren't so gay and my straight friends aren't so straight. I'll let that sink in for a while. The point of that in the end here is just, folks, we've got to love our neighbor. We've got to live it. We've got to live it, meaning we've got to reduce the divorce rate in the Christian church 
so that Tim Sweeney doesn't rightfully say, you're a hypocrite. Sorry, but it's true. We've got to do better. And I think what the Lord is doing right now is saying wheat and chaff. Not to say that, you know, there aren't circumstances where divorce happens. I get that. Focus on the family. We deal with thousands of people every week that are calling us for help in that area. I understand it. But I'm just saying for us to have a witness in the world, we've got to live it. We've got to live it. And perhaps what God is doing and taking away all the kind of uh, easy Christianity saying, live for me, which means you stick it out in a tough marriage and you learn to love each other again in the name of Christ. You learn to deal with your difficult children in the name of Christ. That typically means loving them and trusting God for the outcome. So with that, let me pray for us. Why don't we stand up? You guys have been sitting a while. Father, I thank you for your word that is the compass, the guidance that we need. Lord, help us to see and to feel how we can apply these things today, that the human heart has not changed, Lord. We are the same as what you described for us in the Old and New Testament thousands of years ago. Help us, Lord, to take in and soak in the wisdom of your word. And through the power of your spirit, Lord, be able to deliver to this culture the good news. All of us are broken, but through your death and resurrection, we have life eternal. Lord, help us to be mindful of the enemy of our soul, as you say in John 10.10, that he's come to steal, kill, and destroy us, each one of us, regardless of what proclivities we have, Lord, whatever our sins are that grip us, you are there to, you are there to intercede for us and to stand there like you did for Saul as he watched Stephen be martyred. Lord, we know that Stephen had no way of understanding what you were going to do in Saul's life to use that perhaps as one of the most powerful moments to change his heart toward your message. Lord, give us the confidence and the courage not to fight to win, but to live to love so that you can use our circumstances to transform a heart. Help us to be faithful in that, Lord. And help us to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for joining us on the ERLC podcast. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, visit ERLC.com. And join us next week as we hear about pursuing racial unity.